never-ending story. Mm-hmm. Never-ending story. <laughs> Do you remember that song? <laughs> if you watched the movie, you should. But the real question is, did you know that The Never-Ending Story was originally a book? If you did, did you read it? Today's episode is for all of you who will never get around to reading that book. Hi guys, welcome to all the 21st century human earthlings tuning in today. This is the Fantasy Podcast, where we take a look at science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Is it too old? Is the cover too weird? Did you already see the movie? We'll find out. I am your host, Erica Brickley, and I am absolutely in love with books. My favorite part is the discovery, which is why I intentionally organize my shelves by color to make finding things an adventure. All the books we cover during this podcast are from my personal collection. Today is Classics Day. I decided to cheat a little bit and choose a book I've already spent a lot of time picking apart, and that's The NeverEnding Story, written by Michael Ende, as translated by Ralph Mannheim. It could also be considered a children's story, but I think it meant more to me as an adult than the movie did when I was a kid. Most people have heard of this book because they watched the movie growing up or knew other people who had, but I've never met anyone else who had actually read the book. It's pretty interesting. It's a pretty fantastic read with uh, lots of layers and different ways to interpret the deeper meaning. Is it just a fairy tale or is it more? (laughs) We can discuss that after the summary. Uh, The book was published in 1979 and was later adapted to film in 1984. There's a great documentary called Reimagining the NeverEnding Story that shows a lot of behind-the-scenes footage and covers some of the controversy around it since Ende absolutely hated the movie ending. Uh, You can find it on YouTube. Watching the film, as well as the 1990 and 1994 sequels, uh, was my introduction to the tale, and I enjoyed them for the most part. Uh, The opening song is so catchy. It screams 80s synth. (laughs) Apparently that was really on purpose. Uh, Something for the kids. Uh, Falcor's dragon design is still iconic. Uh, There's just something really beautiful about the world they created on screen. I also enjoyed the 1995 animated kids show based on the movie. Uh, When I learned there was a book, I decided to see what it was all about. Uh, Unfortunately, Ende himself passed away in 1995. Uh, The copy of The NeverEnding Story I own has the uh, usual book cover by Dan Craig. Uh, Right in the center is a little boy in a striped shirt riding on the back of a dragon with a lion's face and a scaly body. To the left is a tiny glowing man standing in a flower holding a flag. To the right is another small person with big shining eyes riding a bat. And in the distance there are hills and mountains, including a gray man in a city of stone. The top half of the cover contains the name and the author, along with two snakes biting each other's tails, making a circle. One snake is white, the other is black. There are also branches and pink flowers. It's a very beautiful cover with lots of detail. Uh, Craig's other work seems to focus on nature, detail, and surrealism, so it's very on brand for him. The book itself is illustrated by a German artist named Roswitha Quadflieg. Great name, Roswitha. (laughs) Every chapter starts with a letter of the alphabet that takes up a whole page and is uh, surrounded by drawings of things that happen in that chapter. Uh, Every chapter starts with a letter of, like, so it's in order. It's like A, B, C, D, etc. Um, uh, here's uh, the author's biography from the back of the book. Michael Ende was born in 1929 in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, Germany. I forgot to look up how to say that. 
After attending drama school, he worked variously as an actor, playwright, director, and film critic before turning to writing novels. His best-known work is The NeverEnding Story, 1979, which stayed at the top of Germany's bestseller list for three years and was adapted into film and two sequels. His other books include uh, The Night of Wishes, Momo, and Jim Knopf and the Lucas... Wait. Jim Knopf and Lucas the Engine Driver, uh, which was which was made into both a television and radio series. Ende lived in Rome until his death in 1995. Okay, there will be plenty of time to discuss the, the book, uh, the movies, etc. later, so let's jump into the summary. Prologue. A boy named Bastian Balthasar Books runs into the used bookshop of a Mr. Carl Conrad Coriander after escaping some bullies. He is fat and pale and slow, but he loves books and is drawn to the one bound in copper-colored silk that the old man is reading. Unfortunately, Mr. Coriander has stated firmly that he will not sell any books to any snot-nosed brats. Bastian steals the book uh, against his better judgment, only to decide moments later that he must hide away now that he has become a thief and a criminal. This leads him to the attic of the schoolhouse, where he makes a sort of nest out of old gym mats and sits down to read the book. It has a special symbol on the front cover, a white snake and a black snake circling each other, biting each other's tails. Please note that uh, you cannot hear from my summary of this book uh, that all parts of Bastion's experience are written in italic text, differentiating the book in his hands from the real world. Okay, back to it. Chapter 1. Fantastica in Danger. Letter A. The never-ending story which Bastion thinks is a fabulous name for a book, starts off with several characters traveling from their countries in the land of Fantastica to the center, the Ivory Tower. Each messenger means to inform the childlike empress, Fantastica's supreme being, about strange and terrible occurrences as an utter nothingness swallows up their homes. When you look at the place, it's as if you are blind, they say. The creatures featured on the cover of the book run into each other on the way there. Blub, the glowing will-o'-the-wisp, Gluckuck, the snail-riding tiny, Vushvazul, the bat-riding nighthob, and Pjornkraksark, the rock-chewer giant. They all discover upon arrival at the tower that hundreds of other messengers have brought the same message about the nothing, and that the childlike empress cannot meet with any of them because she is deathly ill. Chapter 2. Atreyu's Mission. Letter B. After being seen by 499 doctors, the childlike empress sends the 500th on a mission to carry her emblem to the champion who will save her, someone by the name of Atreyu. The final doctor is Chiron, the centaur, the far-famed master of the healing art. He sets out on his mission. The childlike empress's symbol and the source of power is Orin, all capitals, also called the gem or the glory. It is an amulet shaped like two snakes biting each other's tails, one white and one black. In truth, the Empress is the heart of Fantastica rather than its ruler, for she does not govern and does not discern between good and evil, strong and weak, etc. Therefore, all creatures, even the very wicked ones, recognize Orin and do not harm the one carrying it. Chiron carries it to the grassy ocean, where the Greenskins live, but is shocked to discover that Atreyu the Champion is nothing but a young orphan, he decides to trust the childlike empress's judgment and tells Atreyu that he must find a cure for her illness. Leaving his people behind, the young boy sets out with his horse Artax. 
At the same moment, somewhere in Fantastica, a new darkness emerges, taking the shape of a wolf to follow a scent. Chapter 3. Morla, the Aged One. Letter C. Atreyu travels for a long time. He passes through the singing tree country, meets people who collect starlight or are made of fire, and dreams of purple buffalo from his homeland every night. On the way, he asks everyone if they know a cure for the childlike empress's illness, but no one does. He also sees, or rather doesn't see, the nothing for the first time when he comes across three bark trolls who are missing parts of their body. They are caught in, they were caught in the nothing, and it stole from their very essence, continuing to eat at them even now that they've escaped. Afterward, Atreyu's dreams of buffalo take shape. The buffalo he would have killed to become a full-fledged hunter of buffalo, oh, of the Greenskin tribe, comes to him and says he must find Morla the Aged One at Tortoiseshell Mountain in the Swamps of Sadness. Orin protects Atreyu where others would burn, freeze, or die of sadness. His horse Artax, however, is susceptible to the overwhelming depression of the Swamps of Sadness and sinks into the mud, leaving Atreyu to carry on alone. He succeeds in finding Morla the Aged One, who is herself a mountain-sized tortoise, and gets her to tell him what she knows. The childlike empress needs a new name in order to be cured. Atreyu's new goal is to find someone who can give her that name. Morla suggests maybe Uyulala, the southern oracle, might know. Meanwhile, the wolfish darkness is following Atreyu's trail into the swamps of sadness. Chapter 4. Igramul the Many. Letter D. Atreyu leaves the swamps and walks across a cracked desert, eventually coming to the deep chasm. There he meets Igramul the Many, the horror of horrors, a buzzing swarm of insects that shapes itself into terrible things. A panicked scream echoes through the deep chasm, though no one pre present knows where it came from. Igramul has captured a luck dragon, and Atreyu tries to use Orin to make the, to make the monster free him. But she tells the boy that she respects the childlike empress because the supreme being does not order anyone around. Atreyu cannot make commands. So, Atreyu asks about Uyulala, the Southern Oracle, only to learn that she is so far away that he would die getting there. Igramul tells him a secret, that her magical bite will transport him anywhere in Fantastica, but her venom kill will kill him. Stuck, he accepts the bite. At that moment, the wolfish darkness reaches the deep chasm, only to lose Atreyu's scent completely. Chapter 5 the Gnomics. Letter E. Atreyu awakes in the care of Urgil and Engiwuk, the Gnomics. The old married couple live just beyond the gates to the Southern Oracle, which is guarded by two sphinxes whose faces speak of terrifying wisdom and infinite knowledge, disturbing the hearts of onlookers. Atreyu was happy to learn that he was followed by Falcor, the white luck dragon, since he overheard the conversation with Igramul while he was caught in her web. They are nursed back to health by Urgil, the old woman. Engiwuk is a scholar studying the Southern Oracle, interviewing everyone who tries to go through, so he eagerly coaches Atreyu on what he knows. Chapter 6. The Three Magic Gates. Letter F. The young greenskin has to pass through three gates to reach the Oracle. The Great Riddle Gate, where the Sphinxes choose whether or not to let visitors through, the magic mirror gate, where one must face the reflection of their soul, and the no-key gate, 
that only opens for one who does not care whether or not he steps through. Atreyu is allowed in by the Sphinxes, whose faces are so beautiful and knowable that they seem otherworldly, caring little for the gem around his neck. Then Atreyu sees in the magic mirror not his own reflection, but a vision of a fat boy sitting with a copper-colored book. After seeing this, he loses all desires and memories, and only wanders through the no-key gate by accident. Chapter 7 The Voice of Silence Letter G Uyulala, a formless voice, explains in rhyme that only a human from another world can give the childlike empress a new name. When their conversation is done, Atreyu wakes up on the desert plain where the southern oracle used to be, but everything is in ruins. He was gone for seven days and seven nights without realizing it, and the nothing has moved into this area. The sphinxes flew away, and the gnomics are leaving, though not before hearing what Atreyu remembers of the oracle. Then he and the luck dragon set off in search of a human to give the childlike empress a new name. Chapter 8 The Wind Giants Letter H Atreyu and Falcor fly in search of the borders of Fantastica in order to go beyond and bring a human back with them. But even the four wind giants do not know of any borders at all. Fantastica goes on forever, always shifting and changing. After being separated in a violent storm and losing Orin over the ocean, Atreyu finds himself alone, washed up on the shores outside Spook City, the Kingdom of Ghosts. Chapter 9 Spook City Letter I The nothing has lured all the inhabitants of Spook City into it. Ghosts, vampires, ghouls, etc. And the city is abandoned. Atreyu watched them march in a long procession before throwing themselves in voluntarily. Hopeless, Atreyu wanders the city and discovers one lonely creature, Gmork, a starving werewolf chained to the spot. Feeling like a complete failure, Atreyu introduces himself as nobody and listens to the wolf's story. Gmork knows the secret of what happens to Fantasticans who enter the nothing. They become lies in the human world. It is impossible for Atreyu to leave Fantastica and return with a human because to leave here is to cease to be anything but a lie that spreads hurt and fear. The werewolf laments his own failure in hunting Atreyu, the one Fantastican who could bring a human here. As a creature without its own world, this was Gamork's mission. When Atreyu reveals his identity, the werewolf laughs, bites down on the boy's leg to trap him there, and dies. Chapter 10 The Flight to the Ivory Tower Letter J Atreyu is nearly swallowed by the nothing before Falcor can reach him. The luck dragon risked his life to dive into the ocean and retrieve Orin, which gave him enough strength to fly past the nothing into Spook City and carry Atreyu away. They are both incredibly weak and talk about the childlike empress, who must now they must now tell about their failure. Falcor got to meet her once when he was young. She lives in the Magnolia Pavilion atop the Ivory Tower, a place no one can go unless she invites you there. The Empress looks like a little girl, but is the oldest of all Fantasticans, or perhaps ageless. She is the golden-eyed commander of wishes, different from all other Fantasticans. They exist because she exists. To truly understand the riddle of her existence is to cease to exist at all. Falcor and Atreyu arrive at the ivory tower, and Atreyu goes to the childlike empress to return Orin, seeing her for the first time. 
At this point, we need to pause and talk about Bastion Balthazar books because there are really two stories going on in this book. There is a story that Bastion is reading, which is all about Atreyu and Falcor and their adventure, and then there is reality. When the never-ending story tells of how Atreyu was raised by the whole tribe, Bastion is jealous because he has a very distant father whose love and attention uh, he would trade all of his lovely toys and books for. Uh, There are times when Bastion has to put the book down and run to the restroom. Uh, He can hear his fellow students leaving school for the day. He tries to ration out his lunch as the sun sets, and he reads deep into the night. Basically, Bastion is sitting in the schoolhouse attic, present throughout the story, uh, determined to read to the end. He can hear the clock chiming every hour as it ticks down to midnight. Uh, The reason that I bring this up now is that something incredible happens when Atreyu lays eyes on the childlike empress. At the exact same time, Bastion sees her too. And not just in his mind's eye. For a brief moment, he really sees her. The book describes her small, light body, how her almond-shaped eyes the color of dark gold were serene and untroubled, and how she wears a pure pure white silk gown. Uh, Though she looks about ten, her hair is white as snow. Uh, so the book says this, um, but what the book in Bastion's hands doesn't say is that she has perfect eyebrows that look painted on, that she she tilts her head ever so slightly, and that she has elongated earlobes. In this moment, as the clock strikes ten, the name Moonchild pops into Bastion's head. Chapter 11. The Childlike Empress. Letter K. The childlike empress tells Atreyu that he has succeeded where he thought he had failed. Through his adventure, Atreyu brought Fantastica's savior to them. The human boy is with them right now, experiencing this moment, yet he refuses to go to her. She and Atreyu wait and wait, but Bastion is too scared to say the childlike empress's new name out loud. Finally, she has had enough, and her expression scares Atreyu the way the sphinxes did at the Southern Oracle. Atreyu is placed in the care of her servants, while the childlike empress sets out on a journey to search for the old man of Wandering Mountain. He is like me, she says, but he is my opposite in every way. The clock in Bastion's school strikes eleven. Chapter 12. The Old Man of Wandering Mountain. Letter L. The childlike empress and the old man of Wandering Mountain are never meant to meet. And yet she finds his mountain and enters the egg-shaped place where the never-ending story writes itself in a book bound in copper-colored silk. He does not speak. His words are all part of the text that is the story of what is happening right now to both them and Bastion. The childlike empress forces the old man to start the story again, and he hesitantly obeys. For now they are trapped in a cycle, starting with Bastion stealing the book from Mr. Coriander's shop and ending with the childlike empress going to the old man of Wandering Mountain over and over and over again. Feeling as if he's going insane, Bastion lets go of all of his uncertainties and calls out the new name. The clock strikes twelve, the great egg breaks, and everything goes dark. Chapter 13. Perilin, the Night Forest. Letter M. Bastion finds himself in darkness with Moonchild, and she hands him the final grain of sand left in all of Fantastica. With his imagination, he turns it into a seed, from which sprouts Perilin, the night forest, an ever-growing fluorescent jungle. Bastion then discovers three things. One, he is no longer fat, but very handsome and dressed in beautiful clothes and a turban. Two, he is now alone in the forest without Moonchild. And three, he has Orin around his neck. On the back of the amulet reads, Do what you wish. 
He takes this as a sign that he is free to do as he chooses, and he sets forth making wishes. What he does not realize is that with each wish, he gradually forgets that he was ever anything different. As one wish fades, a new one pops up. Now that he is handsome, he wants to be the strongest person anywhere. He enjoys a night of romping around Perlin. Chapter 14 The Desert of Colors Letter N Bastion embraces his new strength and finds himself wishing he was as tough as a Atreyu, hardened by hardship. At daybreak, the night forest crumbles into sand, and Bastion trudges through the hot rainbow dunes of what he has named Goab, the Desert of Colors. There he meets Grogerman, also known as the Many-Colored Death, who dies with the night as Goab's sand seeds sprout perilin and revives when his fur ignites with the sun and the forest crumbles to dust at dawn. Chapter 15 Grogerman, the Many-Colored Death Letter O Only the wearer of Orin can survive being in the Rainbow Lion's presence. So Grogerman gives him the magic sword Sikanda, and they have many good times together. But eventually Bastion wishes to become famous and surrounded by friends, and a door in Grogerman's palace opens for him into the Temple of a Thousand Doors. Chapter 16 The Silver City of Emarganth Letter P Bastion wanders through doors in the temple until he realizes what he really wishes is to see Atreyu, and finds himself outside the silver city of Amarganth, a city built on silver boats floating in Moru, the acid lake. A great tournament is being held by Atreyu to find someone to search for and protect the savior of Fantastica. Amused, Bastion accompanies a band of knights to the tournament. Hyperion, Hisbald, and Hydorn, as well as the pompous hero Heinrich and Princess Aglamar, who Heinrich hopes to woo. Bastion accepts the use of their mule Yika, who immediately recognizes him as the very savior the tournament is for. Bastion enters the contest himself to put hero Heinrich in his place, and in the process Atreyu realizes it's him. The two friends are reunited, meeting properly for the first time. The city celebrates the arrival of their savior, Bastion Balthazar Books. Chapter 17 A Dragon for Hero Heinrich Letter Q Atreyu and Bastion talk about what Bastion has been up to since arriving, and Atreyu is a little less impressed by it all when he finds out his friend is carrying Orin. Since he cannot read, the green-skinned boy did not use the gem to its full power, not realizing what it said on the back. He also comments that he didn't recognize Bastion before because in the magic mirror he had looked like a fat, pale boy in different clothes. Bastion finds this very odd since he only remembers being handsome and admired. His new wish is for Atreyu to truly admire him, so he holds a storytelling event and blows everyone out of the water by telling the tale of the library of Amargonth. It holds every story Bastion has ever told himself, replenishing the city's dwindling supply and thoroughly impressing Atreyu. The reader is reminded that Bastion's stories and wishes can be made up in the moment, yet what they inspire in Fantastica may seem to have existed for all eternity. There is a particularly interesting inscription on the doors to the library where a stone is set. Removed from the unicorn's horn, I lost my light. I shall keep the door locked until my light is rekindled by him who calls me by my name. For him I will shine a hundred years. I will give him in the dark depths of yours, Minrod. But if he says my name a second time, from the end of to the beginning, I will glow in one moment with the light of a hundred years. Bastion names the stone Al-Tahir, 
opening the doors to everyone and allowing him to take the stone along on his and Atreyu's journey out of Fantastica, though privately he's not sure he really wants to go home. They, they take with them the knights from before. However, Hero Heinrich is very depressed about Princess Oglemar, only wanting the strongest man as her husband, and he lost to Bastion. As a gift, Bastion makes up for, makes up for it um, with a story about a terrible dragon named Smurg that has kidnapped the princess, sending Heinrich off to rescue her. Bastion chooses the mule Yika as his steed, and the caravan takes off. Chapter 18. The Acarus. Letter R. Atreyu and Bastion are journeying to return Bastion to his world, and Atreyu gets his friend to talk about everything he remembers, since he's beginning to suspect that making wishes causes Bastion to forget things. However, since nothing feels like it's missing, Bastion spends his time thinking about the consequences of his wishes on Fantastica, not on himself. He mainly thinks of the dragon Smurg wreaking havoc on the countryside. As he daydreams, Bastion decides he doesn't want to make selfish wishes. He instead wants to be known as a good human, or a great benefactor. Soon after, the group encounters creatures Bastion mentioned in his story about the Silver City. The Acarus, the ugliest creatures in all Fantastica who create beautiful works of silver art and whose tears created Moru the Acid Lake. Feeling sorry for these slimy tentacled beings who can't even look at each other, Bastion wishes that they become the Schlemuths, the happiest creatures in the world. However, though no longer weeping, these butterfly clowns have no purpose at all other than, than to make jokes, and they destroy the artistic work the Acarus built the night before. They do not care about Orin at all, and Bastion both laughs and frowns, wondering what he got wrong. Chapter 19. The Traveling Companions. Letter S. Despite wondering if he is making the right wishes, Bastion is losing more of himself, accepting that he has always been handsome, strong, and admired. Atreyu reminds him that his wishes determine the caravan's direction, but they end up going in circles, and he begins to squabble with his friend until Atreyu accepts that Bastion must make wishes and lose memories until they find a way to get him home. Bastion decides he wants to visit the childlike empress in the ivory tower first before trying to get home. He thinks he is special because he already saw her twice, so he's sure he can see her a third time. Around this time, hundreds, then thousands of princes from nations across Fantastica begin flocking to Bastion in the hopes that he might give their country a story of its own. He even begins to forget what brought him to Fantastica at all, and starts believing he created the whole world himself. When asked about the human world, he can tell less and less. Staying near the back of the caravan, Atreyu and Falcor wonder if they will have to save him from himself. Chapter 20. The Seeing Hand Letter T. The huge procession marches through the lands of Zaide, a witch who lives in the hand-shaped structure called Horak Castle, the Seeing Hand, with guards made of empty armor. On a scouting run, Bastion says this to Falcor. I've made up my mind. I'm not going back at all. I'm going to stay in Fantastica for good. I like it here, so I can manage without my memories. And if it's the future of Fantastica you're worried about, I can give Moonchild thousands of new names. We don't need the human world anymore. Bastion easily saves Hyperion, Hisbald, and Hydorn from the witch, who offers herself up as a slave to the mighty savior of Fantastica. While Atreyu sees that she planned everything, Bastion is distracted by her flattery and begins spending time with her. Atreyu, Falcor, and Bastion get into a fight in front of the whole caravan about whether or not Zaida should be allowed to come, 
and keep their distance from each other after that. Bastion insists that she become his servant, tired of Atreyu questioning his leadership decisions. Chapter 21 The Star Cloister Letter U Zaide encourages Bastion to make wishes for himself and no one else. In order to ride with Zaide all the time, he wishes his modest mule Yika away to get married to a Pegasus. The witch gives Bastion a belt that can turn him invisible, and tells him she suspects Atreyu and Falcor will betray him. Bastion doesn't want to hear that. What he does want is to become the wisest man in all Fantastica. Right after, the caravan is visited by messengers from Gigum, the Star Cloister, which is home to monks in the pursuit of knowledge led by an eagle, a fox, and an owl. They ask Bastion about their world, and he gives them cryptic answers to meditate on, finally using the magic stone Alt-Sahir from the Silver City to light up the sky. By saying its name backwards, it shines with the light of a hundred years, revealing the schoolhouse attic where the never-ending story sits. Afterward, the stone disappears, and the philosophers break into arguing factions after seeing the uninterpretable truth. At this point, Bastion does not remember being a child in the human world, nor how he arrived in Fantastica. Chapter 22 The Battle for the Ivory Tower Letter V Moving on, the caravan finally reaches the Ivory Tower, only to discover that the childlike Empress is gone. Bastion begins to wonder if Falcor and Atreyu were right, that he couldn't see her again. So he puts on his belt of invisibility to sneak through camp to visit them, only to overhear them talking. Atreyu plans to steal Orin away from him. He calls his knights, takes control of Zaide's armored guards, and sets a trap for Atreyu, catching the greenskin trying to sneak into Bastion's tent. Atreyu is banished, and he rides away on Falcor. With Zaide by his side, Bastion decides that as the creator of this world, he has every right to sit on the throne as emperor now that the childlike empress has left the throne vacant for him. Although no one is able to access her Magnolia Pavilion, a grand coronation is planned anyway under Zaide's watch, only to be interrupted by a rebel army led by Atreyu. Those loyal to Bastion battle fiercely with the rebels until until Atreyu and Bastion come face to face. You're mad, Atreyu cries. You didn't create anything. You owe everything to Moonchild. Give me Orin. Forgetting any warnings about drawing his special sword, Sikanda, when it does not want to be drawn, Bastion strikes Atreyu, Atreyu down, and the green-skinned boy is carried off by Falcor. Bastion's cloak turns from silver to black as he pursues them, in search of vengeance for being denied his coronation. Chapter 23 the City of Old Emperors Letter W All alone after his metallic horse breaks apart, Bastion comes across a strange city of nonsense buildings and streets filled with people of all ages doing nonsense things. Shaving mirrors, wearing dish rags, playing with blocks without making words, and acting very busy while doing nothing at all. A monkey named Argax informs him that this is the City of the Old Emperors, where all humans lost in Fantastica come to stay. They all, um, they had all run out of wishes before they could return to the human world, whether or not they succeeded in being crowned emperor, and lost Orin for good before ending up here. Bastion learns that Atreyu saved his sanity by keeping him from becoming emperor and using up all of his remaining wishes on terrible things. Ashamed, Bastion uses up a wish to, in order to leave the city, losing his ability to make up stories, and then wishes to be part of a group as just another member with nothing special about him. He now knows that he cannot move forward without wishing, 
So despite however few he has left, he must continue wishing for something. Without the right wish, he cannot leave Fantastica and save himself. This leads him to Skyden, the Sea of Mist, which the monkey said he must cross. A group called the East Kalnari in the town of Basketville take him in take him in and for a time he is happy to exist among them without any distinction however he discovers during their floating journey across the misty sea that individuality means so little to them that they do not care when one of their members is carried away by a monster he doesn't want to be great strong or clever he just wants to be loved unconditionally chapter 24 dame aeola letter x Bastion ends up at the House of Change, where the plant woman, Dame Aeola, looks after him like a mother does a small child. She tells him his own story, the one he has forgotten aside from his parents, and coddles him for a long while. She tells him that not only must he find his final wish to get home, he must do it to reach the water of life at the border of Fantastica that lies not outside of this country, but at the very inside. He leaves when he finally discovers the right wish. He wants to be able to love someone outside himself. Chapter 25 The Picture Mine Letter Y Long ago in the silver city of Emmergonth, when Bastion received the magic stone Alt-Sahir, there was a poem that said its light was meant to be used to guide him in the dark depths of Yorsman Road. Bastion finally meets Yor, the picture miner, and experiences the pitch-black Road, a deep mine, where one can access the forgotten dreams of humans that make up the foundations of Fantastica. Yor tells him that in order to fulfill his final wish, especially now that he has only his name left, Bastion must find a forgotten dream that is his, something that will connect him back to his world. Since he used Al-Sahir on a silly wish to become wise, Bastion must do so blindly in the dark. After long searching, he brings up a dream of a man wearing a doctor's smock and standing frozen in a block of ice. Bastion recognizes it as his own and takes the dream with him in search of the water of life. As he trudges along, Bastion is suddenly confronted by the Schlamuths. They want him to give them purpose in their joke-filled lives and be their leader, but their terrible noise shatters the delicate dream he carries. Chapter 26 The Waters of Life Letter Z Bastion is saved by Atreyu and Falcor, who have been searching for him. By way of apology and accepting all he has done wrong and what he deserves, Bastion takes off Orin and places it at Atreyu's feet. In that moment, they are transported inside the gem, the place where the childlike empress gets her power but can never go. The water of life in its great fountain is guarded by two snakes of impossible size biting each other's tails to keep from destroying everything, one white and one black. The black snake's head sits between them and the water, and Falcor interprets the water's messages. The travelers are only allowed to enter when Atreyu provides Bastion's forgotten name, when Atreyu vouches for him despite Bastion having forgotten the world beyond, and when Atreyu explains that Bastion has made amends for his wrongdoing by giving up Orin on his own. Bastion drinks the water, and all his memories come back to him, along with a new joy in simply existing as a fat, slow boy. However, he is not allowed through the next gate to the human world until Atreyu promises to complete all his unfinished stories for him. Atreyu does all this for Bastion, even though he bears a huge scar on his chest from where Bastion stabbed him, because they are friends. He's just glad that Bastion came around. Bastion scoops up some of the water of life for his father and jumps through the gate. 
Back in the human world, Bastion returns home to discover he was gone just one night. His father, despite his coldness since the passing of Bastion's mother, was worried sick about him and listens to the whole story of where Bastion was. His resulting tears are the water of life brought back by Bastion. They agree that things will be different from now on, and indeed it seems they will, for Bastion is now ready to take responsibility for himself and goes to apologize to Mr. Coriander for stealing the book, which has disappeared. The old man listens to his story as well, commenting that he did not know the childlike empress by the name of Moonchild, since he named her something else, and asks that Bastion come by now and then. Afterward, Bastion runs to his waiting father. The end. Time for my favorite game, Did the Cover Artist Read the Book? Let's review what this cover looks like. For those of you who aren't in a position to look it up for yourself, I want to emphasize how pretty it is. <laughs> Dan Craig's work is really detailed, colorful, and uh, it's really warm and emotive. Uh, there's a real sense of size from the way the background fades into the haze of the sky. In the center of the cover, we have Bastion in a striped t-shirt sitting atop Falcor the Luck Dragon. His arms are extended to the sky. He's taking in the wonders of Fantastica. <laughs> In front of him, we have Blub, the Will-o'-the-Wisp, standing uh, to the left atop a sort of whimsical flower. He's glowing and carrying a white flag, uh, which is a fantastic sign of a peaceful messenger. To the right is Vushvazul, the Night Hob, holding the reins to his bat, uh, who has a very smushed face. <laughs> the Night Hob is very funny and moth-like with uh, big glowing eyes. Uh, both of these characters need the word glowing a lot. It's hard to describe their characteristics any other way. In the background behind Bastion and Falcor are hills to the left and the Rock Tour Mountains to the right, with Pjorncrack's Ark standing among them. Uh, the title is circled by a black snake and a white snake biting each other's tails, uh, surrounded by branches and pink flowers. Really, it's a really it's a very pretty cover, uh, but it's a bit busy. Uh, it also seems to be inspired by both the book and the film, because it has tons of details from Ende's novel while choosing to place a human world version of Bastion on top of Falcor's back, the way the movie ends. In my opinion, Craig probably did read the book, uh, because he includes lots of fascinating little details about the characters, such as Blub's messenger flag or Vushvasul's big glowing eyes. Although Falcor is not white... Uh, instead, he's gold and green. Uh, he has a very lion-esque face and fur along his uh, back spines, which are points reminiscent of Luck Dragon's appearance. Uh, we can touch on that more later. Uh, for the moment, we will say that, yes, Dan Craig read the never-ending never story before giving it an exciting cover that stirs nostalgia for the film while showing some exciting, non-spoily characters. It's just sort of too bad there's no room for Gluckuk the Tiny and his racing snail. <laughs> Uh, something I wasn't sure how to talk about while summarizing the text is that minor characters frequently come and go, and the book always acknowledges that they will go on to have many fabulous adventures without Bastion. For example, Angie Wook, the, uh, the Southern Oracle scholar, apparently becomes very famous. Hero Heinrich has a fabulous adventure chasing after Pri Princess Oglemar uh, that ends with him deciding she's not worth it, and it's hinted that Atreyu will one day visit Grogerman the lion to tell him all of Bastion's adventures. In the second chapter, it's even mentioned that the four different messengers from the first chapter become very good friends. I'll go through a list of characters, uh, creatures, and whatever from the book, the movies, the TV show at the end of the episode. Uh, just a quick disclaimer that I am doing this all from memory rather than watching all three movies and all 26 episodes in the animated series. So, uh, yeah, cut me some slack or tell me what I missed. 
All right. Speaking from memory, I will touch on the fact that uh, memory is an important part of the story. As Bastion lives in Fantastica and loses pieces of what made him human, he feels great, but it's obvious to his friends that he's changing into something very unlikable. The weight of his memories of being a fat, slow, not-so-bright boy fade away, but with them goes his ability to make wishes and even how to tell stories. Um, As a writer, I think my personal experiences are very important for creativity, even the bad ones, and you need to live your life to find moments of inspiration. Uh, Bastion only has as many wishes as he has memories, and he loses memories every time he makes a wish. If he gives up all his memories, he has no more wishes and no direction to move in. If he uses all his wishes, he has no memories. When he runs out of everything, he relies on the only thing he has left. Friends. Uh, Now that you know the basic story, let's talk about what it all means and what the movies did differently. The first thing moviegoers might notice is that the magical world and the never-ending story is called Fantastica in the book, not Fantasia, like in the movie. So far, I haven't found any background on this change, so I can only assume that the public's familiarity with the term Fantasia is in large part due to the 1940 Disney musical anthology film. Uh, I haven't been able to find the origin of that movie's name either, but I can only assume that that was the reason. Uh, Fantasia is also a little easier to say than Fantastica, uh, very magical sounding, so I can't really blame the screenwriter for going with it. Overall, the 1984 movie follows the first half of the book very closely. It ends right after, right around the beginning of chapter 13 when Bastion meets the childlike empress, a.k.a. Moonchild. Even when characters are left out or events are glossed over, the most interesting plot points are generally the same. Bastion hides in the attic with the book while Atreyu is sent to find him. Atreyu is given Orin, loses his horse Artax, meets Morla the Aged One, meets Falcor, then Anguwook and Urgul, gets separated from Falcor, meets Gmork to learn about the nothing, and goes to the childlike empress. As in the book, Bastion can't believe the savior of Fantasia is him, a fat little boy, And only the crumbling of the magical world pushes him to speak the Empress's new name. Uh, Apparently he does say Moonchild at the end of the movie, but it's so garbled that as a kid, I thought he said something like Rosanna, which I assumed was his dead mother's name. So, I mean, there's there's something cool there, but I'm I'm not sure that I, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's what I was supposed to hear. Uh, as a fun note, the never-ending story film from 1984 was directed by Wolfgang Peterson, who is the legendary guy responsible for Das Boot, Enemy Mind, and Troy. Uh, apparently, Michael Ende really hated the ending that was written for the film, uh, where Bastion gets to ride on Falcor's back through his hometown, showing up all his bullies. Uh, from what I can tell from the documentary Reimagining the NeverEnding Story, what he disliked wasn't that the movie covers only half the book, but that this ending missed the point of the whole story. It ignores the fact that Fantasians can't enter the real world. Um, uh, as Well, they can, but they, only as lies. And humans who enter Fantasia, Fantastica, uh, can only leave if they learn to love where they came from. It also glosses over the significance of his relationship with his father, Personally, I think the ending is cute, though it doesn't make any sense. Uh, The amount of work that went into the special effects for this movie kind of make up for any failures, in my opinion. I don't really mind it. Uh, But what about the sequels? Well, they have absolutely nothing to do with the book, aside from a few plot points and characters. uh, And in some ways, they barely feel connected to the original movie, uh, especially since the main actor changes for every movie. The NeverEnding Story 2, the next chapter 
sets up Zaide as a big villain who creates a curse that makes Bastion lose memories as he makes wishes. So the whole thing is about defeating her. And the never-ending story three, Escape from Fantasia, is uh, just a completely new story that reuses favorite characters while blurring the line between reality and the magical world. Also, Jack Black is in that as the bully slash bad guy, uh, which is kind of hilarious. Aside from the beautiful children's movie that is the first film, I really like the animated kids show. Uh, There were VHS tapes of a few episodes at my local family video. It's a much simpler take on the world of Fantasia. Bastion comes and goes like in the kids, like the kids do in Dragon Tales, if you've ever watched that. And uh, he has adventures of Falcor, a bark troll, Buddy, Urgle, and Angiwook, and so on. Uh, Zaide uh, makes another appearance as the villain of the story in every episode, and the childlike empress is there looking pretty. The movie utilizes a lot of things from the never-ending, or sorry, the show utilizes a lot of things from the never-ending story two movie. Uh, like the inclusion of a character called Big Head or the design of Zaide's metal henchman. Uh, the thing that makes the show enjoyable for me is that the writers chose to utilize some of the darker parts of the book that were left out of the movies, uh, though they, they are tweaked. <laughs> Bastion gets stuck with the invisibility belt on, making him fade away while everyone searches for him. Uh, the tears of the Acherus poison the waters of life, ter- turning Fantasians into stone before Bastion turns them into the happy Shlamoofs. Uh, Yes, these versions of the stories are more about adventure than deep emotions, uh, but they are creative. They're engaging in the same way Care Bears or Star Wars Ewoks are. Uh, Now that we've covered the adaptations, let's get into the meat of things. What does the story actually mean? This book is chock full of magical creatures and characters. Uh, I want to discuss some of them in more detail than I provided during the summary. Uh, The ones I think are most interesting are the characters that can act as really strong analogies for people and events we encounter in our real lives. Some people really hate breaking fantasy and science fiction down into interpretations and symbols. But in this case, I think Michael Ende intended for the story to hold a lot of meaning for adults while preparing kids for future struggles. It really speaks to me about overcoming addiction and dealing with fame or money. Now, this isn't like The Lord of the Rings, which might take place a long time ago before the world as we know it came to exist. Fantastica is meant to exist alongside reality to be experienced differently by every person, just as Bastion and Mr. Coriander do. The basic story of Bastion is a classic tale about rising to a place of power or perceived happiness, falling hard, and getting back on your feet. It really makes me think of a rock star who started out as a lonely kid playing guitar in their room who becomes one of the most famous people on the planet, only to get into drugs, alcohol, sex, and bad company that inflate their ideas of self-worth far beyond what's normal. They hurt their friends and grip so tightly to their dreams of world domination that only hitting rock bottom all alone knocks them out of it. They see how others have failed to come back from that fall, and they do everything they can to remember who they are and find a life again. A lot of the time, we need our family and our friends to help us, just as Atreyu does when uh, Bastion finally apologizes. And most of us won't have that specific experience, but there are ups and downs in life, and we have to find the core things that make us functioning people without losing ourselves to fantasy and everything completely. Uh, let's go through all the characters and creatures from this story and uh, about it's about a world where anything can exist. Uh, this is a chance to hear some details about people and things I didn't linger on during the summary. One of my favorite books in, is uh, Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, which features a, 
uh, features information about and illustrations of aliens from science fiction literature. So we'll emulate that format a little bit. I can also offer my personal interpretations of each character's role within Bastion's adventure, keeping in mind that these are my own opinions and reactions, not backed by extensive research. I'll also touch on which characters made it into the movies and the TV show, or where the invented, where, uh, or were invented specifically for the screen. All right, the childlike empress. Uh, it's made through clear throughout the book that the childlike empress is uh, the heart and soul of Fantastica. Nothing exists without her, and the nothing swallows Fantasticans until she is restored. Although Fantastica is constantly shifting around, her home is always at the center. She lives in the Magnolia Pavilion at the top of the Ivory Tower, which is the size of a whole city and, quote, looked like a pointed mountain peak twisted like a snail shell, unquote. It houses all her attendants, cooks, entertainers, so on. It is surrounded by the labyrinth, a great hedge maze. The Magnolia Pavilion at the at the peak sits at the top of a steep slope that is so slippery and smooth that no one can climb it. When Bastion tries to take over as Emperor of Fantastica, workmen try to chip away at it to make it climbable with, with chisels, but it doesn't work. No one can enter the pavilion without the childlike Empress willing it, at which point they simply arrive there, not knowing how it happened. This ties into the fact that no one sees the golden-eyed Commander of Wishes more than once. You only meet her in the pavilion if she wants you to. Bastion is special for seeing her twice, but the first time was only a glimpse, and he couldn't bring himself to believe it really happened. So he only saw her once while actually accepting what he was seeing. I went into some detail about what the childlike empress looks like during the summary, because I think it's interesting how Bastion is able to actually see her at the same moment Atreyu does, and notices details that aren't mentioned in the text of the book bound in copper-colored silk. To reiterate, she looks like a 10-year-old with long snow-white hair and dark gold almond-shaped eyes that are serene and untroubled. Her white silk gown is so pure that it makes the pale walls inside the Magnolia Pavilion look gray. She also has long earlobes like Buddha. Aside from a few points, I think her portrayal in the 1984 movie was really good. According to the documentary Reimagining the NeverEnding Story, they worked really hard to find the right actress who was beautiful with big, sorrowful eyes. Uh, even her hair and wardrobe were carefully chosen. I think actress Tammy Stronach uh, was very successful in that part, and the versions of the Empress in the other two films are just trying to copy what they pulled off in the first. Uh, what the film leaves out is that the childlike Empress has invisible servants who take care of Atreyu and Falcor uh, and carry her in a glass litter on her journey to find the old man of Wandering Mountain. Uh, for those of you who aren't sure what a litter is in this context... Uh, it's basically a seat cushion with handles so servants can carry someone or something important around. Uh, think of Howl's Moving Castle by Studio Ghibli and the thing that the Witch of the Wastes travels in with the help of her blobby henchmen. Uh, in the Childlike Empress's case, they are referred to as her powers, capital P. So, who is she? In my opinion, she represents the beginning of every story and the inspiration that ignites the writer's drive to start writing. No Fantastican or storybook character can exist without her, uh, but they also cannot truly understand what she is. Humans who see her do so when they give her a new name, marking a new era in Fantastica and storytelling as a whole. Bastion's name for her, uh, Moonchild, is indicative of the effect she has on humans, uh, as, close and far, as, as close and as far away as the moon, as inspiring and terrifying and cosmic. She is beautiful, unknowable, and intimidating, yet delicate as a child. 
She never ages because she is the embodiment of a single moment. While she knows all the secrets, anyone who sees her has to discover them for herself, for themselves. Uh, she is demanding and entrancing, and many humans become obsessed with rediscovering how they felt when they discovered her, leading to the existence of the city of old emperors. In terms of allegory, the childlike empress is that first dopamine hit that addicts spend their whole lives chasing, whether that means actual drugs or a performance high or something else. If no one finds inspiration anymore or denies it when they see it, no new fantasies can be made and Fantastica begins to die. In the words of Morla the Aged One, as she speaks to Atreyu, Your life is short, son. Ours is long. Much too long. But we both live in time. You a short time, we a long time. The childlike empress has always been there, but she's not old. She has always been young. She still is. Her life isn't measured by time, but by names. In the words of Igramel the Many, you have no right to ask that of Igramel even if you are wearing Orin the gem. The childlike empress takes us as all as we are. That's why Igramel respects her emblem. Grogramen says, It is she who has given you everything. The Old Man of Wandering Mountain uh, Just as the childlike empress is the beginning of all stories and therefore forever young, the old man is the continuation of all stories and forever old. He oversees the book in which everything is written and speaks through it. His home cannot be found by anyone actually looking for it. They can only stumble across it. When Bastion's self-doubt prevents him from going to the childlike empress because he's sure she won't be happy when she sees him or that she must be talking to some other child reading the never-ending story, she has no choice but to confront him with the reality of Fantastica. There are things no Fantastican can ever know, and one of the most important ones is the true nature of not only the childlike empress, but that of the old man of Wandering Mountain. No one can find the mountain who is searching for it. They can only happen to find it. When she does find the Wandering Mountain, it looks similar to the Ivory Tower, except that it's blue. Halfway up sits an egg the size of a house, framed by blue pipes like a church organ. A face appears in a circular door, or a window, in the front of the egg, then a long ladder is thrown down. Every rung of the ladder is made of words warning her to turn back, that she and the old man are never meant to meet. The ladder includes lines like, The way is barred to you alone, for never shall beginning seek the end of all, and... You will never be old, and I, old man, was never young. The childlike empress points out that if he really didn't want her there, he shouldn't have made that ladder. But it's not his job to govern where the story goes, only to document it. Inside the egg, the never-ending story floats in the middle of the room with the same copper-colored silk Bastion recognizes, complete with a copy of the childlike empress's Orin on the cover. The old man never looks away from the book, which he is writing with a stylus, so effortlessly that it just glides across the page. He's wrinkled as an ancient tree with a long white beard and eyes so deep in their sockets they can't be seen. He wears a hooded monk's robe. Uh, everything happening now appears in the book, including details about the childlike empress reading it as it's being written. When the old man has something to say, she can hear it, but maybe only because she read it in the book. She tries to make sense of all this, and he replies, What does one see in a mirror reflected in a mirror? Upon further questioning, he explains that he cannot see ahead because there are only unwritten white pages, and the childlike empress is doomed now that she is here in the egg. Every egg is the beginning of new life, she says. True, he replies, but only if its shell bursts open. They are trapped here, neither with the power to open the egg again. 
The old man's book is written in two colors of ink, emerald green and blood red. These represent what is happening in Fantastica and what is happening to Bastion, because all of it is part of the never-ending story. The childlike empress pushes the old man to begin the circle of eternal return in the hopes of getting Bastion to act. The old man starts the story over from where a fat little boy entered Mr. Coriander's bookshop and introduced himself as Bastion Balthazar Books and retells everything we've heard up till now. Only when Bastion accepts that this is really happening, feeling as if he's going insane because he's trapped in the cycle as much as the Empress and the old man are, does the egg burst open with a new story. So, what is the significance of the old man of Wandering Mountain? I think he's pretty clearly supposed to represent the endless continuation of stories. Not exactly the end, since this is called the never-ending story, but the story itself that pours out of initial inspiration, for better or for worse. It reminds me of this quote. Genius is 1% talent and 90%... Uh, <laughs> Genius is 1% talent and 99% hard work. People focus on that spark of brilliance without realizing there's an endless process behind bringing a project to fruition. Yes, the childlike empress is revered by all, but the old man is constantly inside his mountain, laboring over the never-ending story. Whether or not a particular story has an ending, the real work never ends and the show must go on. While he does appear in the third film from, 19, uh, from 1994, uh, he's more of a side character with a cool visual effect. Uh, and it's Bastion's bully who realizes that everything happening now is recorded in the book, uh, which he's somehow able to take control of for his own advantage. <laughs> Gamork the Werewolf Manifesting in Fantastica as a werewolf, having previously been some dark, shapeless thing from a world unknown, Gamork's mission is to find Atreyu and kill him. He starts out on this mission as soon as Atreyu himself leaves home in search of a cure for the childlike empress. Chiron being assigned his own mission and all the messengers in Fantastica going to the ivory tower to alert the empress about the nothing is all prologue to Atreyu's important journey to bring a human there. So, just as Atreyu takes off, so does Gamork. This is the pivotal moment when Bastion is both sucked into the story, literally, by the end of it, and really doubts that he is anything special compared to someone like the brave, athletic, independent Atreyu. Gamork almost catches up with Atreyu after tracking him through the swamps of sadness, but loses him when Igramel bites Atreyu, allowing him to teleport all the way to the Southern Oracle which was established to be so far away that Atreyu wouldn't have made it otherwise in his own lifetime. Uh, we don't see Gamork again until Atreyu and Falkor are separated in the wind giant storm, and Atreyu is delivered to the shore outside Spook City by presumably mermaids, uh, having lost Orin. In the city, he finds the werewolf chained to the spot. In his final starving moments, Gamork tells Atreyu, who has introduced himself as nobody, uh, that he failed his mission, just as the childlike empress's champion seems to have failed his, uh, and ended up here in Spook City, where Gaia, the dark princess, took him in. He was seduced by her kindness, and he sort of fit into the dark, grimy, unfriendly place that is Spook City, uh, but the time came when the princess chained him, using magic only she could undo. She told him that no matter how vile her people are, they are still fantasticans, and Gamork is their enemy. So she imprisoned him in Spook City before joining the procession, marching into the nothing. The boy, who is nobody, convinces Gamork to tell him what the secret of the nothing is, and the werewolf complies only out of sick enjoyment at witnessing the boy's shock. Gamork explains that the nothing is a gateway to the human world, and the only way to get there, uh, 
and well, this is the gateway to the human world, the only way to get there. Uh, but Fantasticans transform into lies when they pass through. Their original form is lost and they spread evil instead. When Gmork reveals that his mission was to kill Atreyu to prevent him from saving the childlike Empress and stopping the spread of the nothing, the boy is so shocked that he in turn reveals that he is Atreyu. Gmork laughs horribly and bites down on Atreyu's leg, holding him there in a death grip as he himself finally dies. Atreyu is stranded in Spook City, unable to move as the nothing closes in. Like any Fantastican without Orin, he feels drawn to the nothing and would have jumped in if not for Gamork's jaws clamped down on his leg. He's saved when Falcor, now wearing Orin, finds him and carries him away to the Ivory Tower, both of them drained and gray from overexposure to the nothing. Gamork is a character that baffled me for years after I read the book for the first time. I couldn't decide what he was supposed to symbolize. If there is the human world and there's Fantastica... What other world did he come from to be sent into Fantastica to disrupt Atreyu's mission? How is it that he can be seduced by the comforts of Fantastica the way a human can? Uh, at one point, he also mentions that he appears human in the human world and as a Fantastican in, in Fantastica, but isn't either one of those things. Fortunately, I posted an essay on my Goodreads profile a while back, and a user by the name of Andrew Peters uh, responded with his, with his thoughts, which really helped me out. He says, I think Gamork is sent by those in the human world who subscribe to skeptical doubt, especially as it manifests as materialist science, where all fantasy is intentionally ignored as just that, fantasy and nothing more. Their objective is to is ultimately to drag all the creatures from Fantastica into the nothing, where they end up in the human world exposed for what they truly are, lies. Thus, scientific knowledge proceeds by exposing fantasy as fantasy in favor of empirical demonstration. So, in Fantastica, he appears as a werewolf who eats the imaginary beings, i.e. exposes them as just imaginary. On the one hand, it, this seems evil, but on the other hand, he clamps his jaw onto Atreyu's leg, saving him, keeping him from stepping into the nothing. An image of skeptical doubt acting as an anchor to those who would dip into the deep realms of psyche and fantasy. In other words, truly understood, a skeptic would be skeptical also of the idea that the imagination is just fantasy. This entire book is filled with so many symbols and allegorical connections, I'm mind-boggled. This is not a kid's book. Thanks for your article, Erica. <laughs> Uh, I think Andrew has a really great point here, and it ties in with how Michael Ende's book is about having fantasy as an outlet while not believing in it no matter what, because that's unhealthy. We need the people who love us in the real world, even if they're not perfect, just as we're not, uh, but we also need our fantasies. Skeptics can make life less fun and discourage fantasy while also grounding us and preventing us from getting too carried away. This is the same reason why Gamork is both determined to end Atreyu's adventure and able to love the princess of Spook City, despite his better judgment. He even has enough of a heart to howl his feelings of loss over both his mission and the princess, a sound which calls Atreyu to him. His portrayal in the film is also is really good. It's really scary. Uh, I'm pretty sure that in both the book and the film, he has these bright green eyes, just this massive werewolf. Like, it's pretty awesome. Okay, time for a speed round. Uh, now I'm going to briefly touch on the other creatures featured in the NeverEnding Story, including whether or not I remember if they were in the films. 
Most of these creatures uh, or characters aren't as symbolic as the childlike empress or Gamork, so I'm just going to mention their basic traits. Tinies. Akin to something like brownies or little people like Thumbelina, the Tinies are a very small group of people. Glockuk is the only one we meet in the book, featured at the very beginning with the other messengers headed for the ivory tower to tell the childlike empress about the nothing. Uh, Glockuk is very well dressed and is the fastest messenger of the group since he has a very well-trained racing snail. Tinies do appear in the animated TV show, too. Rock Chewers Pjorn Kraxark is among the messengers Bastion first reads about, on his way to the ivory tower, on his stone bicycle with wheels like millstones, which he ends up eating when he gets too hungry, uh, forcing him to walk the rest of the way. Rock chewers, or rock biters in the movies, are stone giants who live in a mountain range called the Cheesy Wheezies, due to looking like Swiss cheese after so much of them has been eaten. Pjorn Kraxark gets a lot of screen time in the movies and the TV show, uh, along with his baby son. Night Hob. These creatures look like furry black caterpillars with tiny pink hands and big round moon eyes. Vushvazul is a messenger who encounters Gluckuk the Tiny and Pjorn Kraxark the Rock Chewer in the Howling Forest, and he gets to the Ivory Tower second after Gluckuk on his bat. Will o' the Wisp. Other than being small, glowing, and typically dangerous due to Due to their tricky nature, we don't know much about Will-o'-the-Wisps aside from what we see of Blub the Messenger, who chooses to continue on alone to the Ivory Tower rather than try to trust the others. Alright, Chiron, aka Big Head. <laughs> the best physician in Fantastica, famous to everyone, including uh, aged Greenskins, Chiron is a zebra centaur with black skin and a white beard. He's very clearly... Like, it's it said that he is black, not just... Anyway. Um, he likes to wear a hat of woven reeds. When he takes Oren to the grassy ocean for delivery to Atreyu, he's shocked to learn that the champion is just a young boy. Uh, but he's a wise old man and chooses to have faith in the childlike empress's choice. The story indicates that he goes on to have many great stories of his own after Atreyu leaves for the great quest. In the first movie, there is a black character who presents Atreyu with the gem uh, at the ivory tower and seems to be some sort of representative of the childlike empress uh since chiron himself makes no appearances i think he inspired this character especially you know the being like the only black character uh the makeup team gave him this really kind of a large head uh which looks cool uh but in the sequels uh this version of the character is like a totally exaggerated to an almost annoying extent uh, no longer, uh, not only is he no longer black, he becomes even more big-headed. Uh, thus, he's just called Big Head. And he's, like, perpetually nervous. Uh, this is really obvious in the animated series where he's a recurring character who hangs around the childlike empress like a vice president or a PR manager. Uh, I was really surprised when I read Michael Ende's novel and this character was nowhere to be seen. Uh, but I like Chiron the Centaur a lot better. Greenskins. Atreyu is a member of the Greenskins tribe, uh, also known as the Grassy People, who have green skin and blue-black ba- blue hair, often wearing cloaks made of purple buffalo fur. They hunt the purple buffalo who roam the grassy ocean prairies and love and respect them. On the day Chiron arrives to see him, Atreyu was on his first real hunt that would have marked him as a man and a hunter, but he turns away from all that for the great quest. Raised by the whole tribe after his parents died, Atreyu is confident and strong, especially with his talking horse Artax with him. 
Although Atreyu cannot read, he is intelligent and has a fantastic memory. As thanks for allowing it to uh, live uh, by going on the quest, the purple buffalo that would have been Atreyu's first kill appears to him in a dream and points him towards his first big clue. None of this appears in the movies because Atreyu is, portray uh, is portrayed as more, is, he's a more straightforward Native American boy who went to the Ivory Tower to accept Orin. Bark Trolls. Similar to Ents from The Lord of the Rings, uh, these tree people live in the forests. They, uh, their appearance in the book is small, just three trolls partly eaten by the nothing, who tell Atreyu uh, more about the looming problem he's up against. Uh, but starting in movie two, there is a character named Bark Troll, who is Bastion's companion for many adventures in both the sequels and the TV show. He's a typical nervous, bumbling sidekick. Morla the Aged One Deep within the swamps of sadness, where anyone not carrying the gem becomes so depressed that they willingly sink into the black water out of sight, lives Morla the Aged One. She supposedly lives on or near Tortoiseshell Mountain, but Morla is in fact a giant swamp turtle herself. The opening of her shell looks like a huge cave, and her head is as big as a house. Unfortunately, Morla has spent so much time by herself that she talks to herself constantly. Like other powerful ancient creatures Atreyu encounters, Morla recognizes Orin, but doesn't really care that he's carrying it, and she doesn't care that the world of Fantastica will end without saving the Empress. What do we care, she says. Nothing matters to us anymore. It's all the same to us. She's a very sad, lonely creature, uh, but she has a bit of fun teasing Atreyu, admitting she knows the answer to his question, how to save the childlike empress, but withholding the information for a while. It's implied that she knows so much because she is so old that she's seen this same journey play out a number of times. Someone gives the childlike empress a new name, and the world refreshes itself. As the empress doesn't discriminate between... Uh, creatures of good and evil, Morla sees no benefit or harm in anything. Uh, so she's similar but different, uh, <laughs> because nothing has any real purpose. She only tells Atreyu anything because it's mildly entertaining, but eventually she gets annoyed and bored and retreats into her shell. As Atreyu presses her to tell him who can give the Empress a new name, uh, or who can tell him that, she says she would eat him if it were not for the gem. Her last word of advice is to visit the Southern Oracle. The swamp scenes from the movie are famous for the effects as well as the emotion. I hear people mention Artax's death more than anything else about the never-ending story, despite the film having tons of adventure and magic and everything after that point. It really left an impact on kids. Uh, when it's followed up by this giant sad <laughs> then it's that scene is followed <laughs> followed up by this giant sad turtle. <laughs> uh, it's a scene that uh, very is very closely follows the book, and I like it a lot. Luck Dragon. Unlike most fire-breathing monstrosities, luck dragons are friendly and happy and social, uh, though they still don't like to be indoors. Usually they sleep in the air, flying in lazy circles. They have iridescent scales that shimmer white and pink with uh, white fur sticking out between them. Their faces are lion-like with a soft mane. Their eyes are big and red. And they are very long, much like a Chinese dragon. Falcor is the luck dragon who sticks by Atreyu. His voice is like a giant bell or gong, and hearing a luck dragon sing is supposed to be lucky in and of itself. The text says, Anyone who has heard this sound will remember it as long as he lives and tell his grandchildren about it. Uh, he's also confident everything will work itself out, uh, other than the time when Bastion got too full of himself and tried to become emperor. 
At the end of the book, Falcor is able to speak with the Water of Life and the two giant snakes who hold Fantastica together because dragons are cousins of snakes. Lucky he was with Bastion and Atreyu there, am I right? Falcor's portrayal in the movies is, of course, iconic. He's just as the book describes. Creatures of air, warmth, and pure joy. Despite their great size, they are as light as a summer cloud and consequently need no wings for flying. They swim in the air of heaven as fish swim in water. Igramul the Many uh, across the desert from the Swamps of Sadness, in the land of the dead mountains, there is the deep chasm. Is it chasm or chasm? No one knows how deep it is, and the uh, horror of horrors is said to live there. As Atreyu walks along the edge, he comes across that exact horror, a swarming mass of buzzing black insects that bend and twist into shapes in the air. First it's a spider, then a clawed hand, then a scorpion. Uh, like a spider, she weaves a web to catch passing creatures like Falcor the Luck Dragon. Because Igramul is not just one creature, she's known as Igramul the Many. And like any powerful being in Fantastica, she listens to Atreyu due to his plot armor, I mean, the gem around his neck, for a while, though it can't convince her to hand over her prey. Interesting note, uh, that this is the first place where Bastion's consciousness really starts to bleed into Fantastica because he screams when Igramul turns to see Atreyu, and that scream echoes through the deep chasm. It confuses the characters as much as it does him, and they all move on, dismissing the strange moment. Igramul is impatient to get back to her meal, but she willingly tells Atreyu that he could, uh, that he cannot reach the Southern Oracle. Um, with or without the luck dragon, because it's so far away. Delighted by his despair upon hearing this news, Igramul tells him her secret, that anyone bitten with her venom can transport themselves anywhere in Fantastica instantly, though they'll have less than an hour to live when they get there. Hopeless, Atreyu allows himself to be bitten, and Falcor the luck dragon also transports himself to the same place, since he has very good hearing and understands everything they say. As a fun side note, I think I first learned how to pronounce Igramul, Y-G-R-A-M-U-L, from the animated series, although I think she's just a spider in that. The Gnomics. Angiwook and Urgle are a couple of tiny gnome-like people who live near the Southern Oracle until the nothing forces them to move away. Angiwook is a crotchety old man who studies the Southern Oracle, interviewing everyone who makes an attempt uh, and documenting it. Urgle is interested in potions and healing magic, which is very helpful when Atreyu and Falcor show up on their doorstep poisoned. <laughs> the, uh, the text assures us that Angiwook goes on to be very famous and successful despite the Southern Oracle disappearing, and the gnomes pop up in the movies and TV show, continuing their old couple banter. I really like their designs and actors. <laughs> Sphinxes. As mysterious and terrifying as the childlike empress herself, the sphinxes decide which heroes and villains are worthy of stepping through the great riddle gate of the southern oracle towards the, ne uh, the next two gates and having a chance to speak with Uyulala. Only if they close their eyes can someone walk past them, seemingly towards an empty desert plain. They are blind in that they don't really see, but their eyes send out riddles of the universe. Only another sphinx can stand it. Thus, there are two. If you're caught between them, you waste away trying to solve every riddle in, the, in existence. 
The sphinxes never sleep. The bones of people who failed are scattered about. Angie Wook says that there are brave, strong men who fail, and absolute fools and wicked people who are let through. Only the sphinxes know who will and won't make it through to continue with their story, privy to secrets no fantastican will ever know. As for their movie counterparts, the opposite happens. <laughs> the sphinxes open their eyes as Atreyu passes through, nearly frying him with their laser beams. Uyulala. Beyond the three magic gates is an endless hall of columns between which floats the bodiless voice of Uyulala, the southern oracle. She can't understand anything but rhymes, so Atreyu must ask all his questions in verse. Sadly, she knows her time is coming, since the nothing is fast approaching. Wind Giants After leaving the Southern Oracle in search of a human from beyond Fantastica to give the childlike Empress a new name, Falcor and Atreyu come across the Battling Wind Giants. Whenever they come together, the giants battle in the form of hurricanes and tornadoes. Using Oren to get their attention, despite being no bigger than a fly to these four, uh, Atreyu asks them where the borders of Fantastica are. There is Lur from the north, black, Boreo from the east, lead and gray, Shirik from the south, sulfur yellow, and Maestril from the west, fiery red. It is interesting that Atreyu, uh, a green skin based off of Native American uh, sort of generalities, uh, speaks to the four giants from the four directions because their colors align with Lakota folklore. Unfortunately, after the four wind giants agree that there are no borders in any of their directions, they continue their war game, leading to Atreyu's separation from Falkor. Spook City According to Gamork himself, uh, to... <laughs> According to Gamork the werewolf himself, uh, Spook City and the Land of Ghosts is the most famous place in all Fantastica, with the most stories told about it. Gaia the Dark Princess rules the city, uh, which probably felt haunted even before Atreyu walks through it after all the inhabitants threw themselves into the nothing. I'm curious if this whole part was Michael Ende's way of explaining why there are so many scary ghost stories. If Fantasticans feel drawn into the nothing which is the gateway to the human world, and the people of Spook City all went in, it means there are a lot of lies about ghosts. <laughs> it sounds like you didn't really believe in those stories. Ice Glumps These are creatures who live on the Mountain of Destiny, a mountain so tall and perilous that no one is allowed to climb it until the last successful person to do so is long forgotten, making each climber the first to ever do so. Ice glumps are barely alive, moving so slowly that they need years to take a single step and can only associate with their own kind, convincing them that they are the only living things in Fantastica. Even the childlike empress passing by is nothing but a fast-moving speck. Grogramen The lord of the desert of colors is Grogramen, the many-colored death, a flaming lion of a thousand colors. He's the first creature Bastion meets in Fantastica after joining the childlike empress there. The lion produces a terrible heat that destroys everything around him, creating a desert that stretches endlessly that he can never leave. It travels with him because the sand is made of the ashes of everything the heat touches. Uh, as he passes over different colored dunes, his own color changes as well, which is kind of fun. At night, he returns home to his stone castle, uh, which has a special room in it for someone like Bastion to make himself comfortable, featuring a luxurious bath and other co comforts, along with the sword Sikanda. Uh, in a sort of throne room, Grogramen dies when the sun goes down, turning to stone with a thunderous cracking sound. 
The absence of his flaming heat allows peril in the night forest to grow out of the sand, for every grain is a seed. Uh, then it all burns down again in the morning, once again becoming Goab the Desert of Colors, inhabited only by Grogerman. The only way to leave is through the Temple of a Thousand Doors, which, which Bastion only discovers when he truly wishes for something he can't find here with Grogerman. There is tragedy in Grogerman's story, uh, very similar to that of Morla the Aged One, except that he hasn't lost hope. He keeps a room ready in case someone can survive the heat. He makes friends with Bastion immediately, happy to have a companion for the first time. When he learns the meaning of his nightly death, that it allows the night forest to grow, he feels joy in knowing not everything about him brings death. In his own, in his own death, he brings life, and his desert prevents Perilin from overwhelming the whole of Fantastica with its flowers and vines. Uh, in the animated series, he's referred to as Grogerman the Fire Lion, but otherwise the story is very similar. Temple of a Thousand Doors This is an interesting part of the book, uh, even though Bastion isn't in the temple for very long. Uh, he only finds it when he has done all there is to do with just Grogerman the Lion and begins to hunger for more adventures, for fame and notoriety. He spends a great day with Grogerman, spends the evening watching the night forest grow, then sees that the door to his bedchamber has opened to a new place. He hesitates for a moment, almost losing his chance to go through, and he must quickly enter without saying goodbye to his, his lion friend. Once inside, there is a hexagonal room with a door in every other wall segment. This means that Bastion enters through one door and is confronted with two new ones. He begins passing through doors, choosing randomly, because all the doors are different, but have something in common. One door is tall and the other one's short. One is white, one is black. One is wood, one is metal, so on. The rooms also change lighting and wall patterns. Bastion goes through gingerbread doors, doors that look like mouths, doors of gold, and doors that can be opened like an oven or a button-up shirt. Only when something reminds him of a Atreyu does he re realize that that is who he wishes to see. He choos chooses an abalone door because it reminds him of Falcor. Then he picks a grass door, then a leather one. Finally, he's confronted by an olive green door and a purple door, both of which feature white painted symbols that Atreyu had on his face when he was supposed to go on his very first hunt when Chiron uh, called him to the Great Quest. The text explains that Bastion remembers something about those painted symbols on Atreyu's skin, but does not know that they were also painted on the young Greenskin's cloak. So, he picks the green door and finds himself outside on the road to the, to the Silver City of Amaranth. I like reading this passage and trying to decide what Ende meant by presenting Bastion with each set of doors. It seems like some are completely random because Bastion doesn't have re any reason to pick any of them until he has a goal in mind. What I think is really interesting is that the last set of doors are the same except one is Atreyu's skin color, while the other one is his cloak color. What's the difference? Where would Bastion end up if he chose the purple door? Perhaps it's just Ende's way of sliding in a little insider information about things even Bastion doesn't know, because the never-ending story he read in the school attic was missing tiny details. In a way, it's as if Bastion is experiencing a film adaptation of Fantastica and seeing the makeup and costume team's choices for a character design, except it's the real deal and he's simply seeing the full picture now, the true depth of Fantastica. This calls back to how he saw the childlike Empress clearly for a moment, uh, including characteristics that were not written in the copper-colored book until he saw them himself. The Acarus 
These were creatures I remembered seeing in the animated series, but not in the movies, uh, though the Silver City of Amaranth is a prominent setting in the second film. Uh, there was something about the sad story, like Grogramans, that kept me thinking about them after I watched their episode. Bastion visits the Silver City to enter a competition to become his own protector, <laughs> showing that he is stronger than anyone and more than capable of traveling alone. He's honored not only by Atreyu and Falcor, but by all the townspeople, including Quirquabad, the Silver Sage, the leader and oldest citizen. While there, he also blows everyone out of the water during a storytelling contest, providing a backstory for a city of boats in the middle of an acid lake. Uh, here is the story. Let me just flip to the right page here. 269. Here we go. In the gray dawn of time, the city of Amargonth was ruled by a silver sages named Quana. In those long past days, Moru, the Lake of Tears, hadn't been made yet. Nor was Amargonth built of the silver, uh, special silver that withstands the water of Moru. It was still like other cities, with houses of stone and wood, and it lay in a valley among wooded hills. Quana had a son named Quinn, who was a great hunter. One day in the forest, Quinn caught sight of a unicorn, which had a glittering stone at the end of its horn. He killed the beast and took the stone home with him. His crime for it is a crime to kill unicorns, brought misfortune on the city. From then on, fewer and fewer children were born to the inhabitants. If no remedy were found, the city would die out. But the unicorn couldn't be brought back to life, and no one knew what to do. Kwana, the silver sages, sent a messenger to consult Uyulala in the southern oracle. But the southern oracle was far away. The messenger was young when he started out, but old by the time he got back. Quana had long been dead, and her son Quinn had taken her place. He too, of course, was very old, as were all the other inhabitants. There were only two children left, a boy and a girl. His name was Aquil, and hers was Mukwa. The messenger reported that Uyulala's voice had revealed. Uh, uh, reported what Uyulala's voice had revealed. The only way of preserving Amargonth was to make it the most beautiful city in all Fantastica. That alone would make amends for Quinn's crime. But to do so, the Amargonthians would need the help of the Acarus, who are the ugliest beings in Fantastica. Because they are so ugly, they weep uninterruptedly, and for that reason, they are also known as the Weepers. Their stream of tears wash the special silver deep down in the earth, and from it they make the most wonderful figures, uh, the, the wonderful filigree, all the Amargonthians went looking for the Acarus, but were unable to find them, for they live deep down in the earth. At length, only Aquil and Mukwa were left. They had grown up, and all the others had died. Together they managed to find the Acarus and persuade them to make Amargonth the most beautiful city in Fantastica. First, the Acarus built a small filigree palace, set it on a silver barge, and moved it to the, mar uh, to the marketplace of the dead city. Then they made their streams of underground tears well up in the valley among the wooded hills. The bitter water filled the valley and became Moru, the Lake of Tears. On it the first silver palace floated, and in the palace dwelt Aquil and Mukwa. But the Acarus had granted the plea of Aquil and Mukwa on one condition, namely that they and all their descendants should devote their lives to ballad singing and storytelling. As long as they did so, the Acarus would help them, because their, then their ugliness would help create 
something beautiful. To Aquil and Mukwa, uh, so Aquil and Mukwa founded a library, the famous library of Amarganth, in which they stored up all my stories. Remember, this is Bastion talking. They began with the one you have just heard, but little by little they added all those I have ever told. And in the end, there were so many stories that their numerous descendants, who now inhabit the Silver City, will never come to the end of them. If Amarganth, the most beautiful city in Fantastica, is still in existence today, it is because the Acherus and the Amarganthians kept their promise to each other. Though today the Amarganthians have quite forgotten the Acherus, and the Acherus have quite forgotten the Amarganthians. Only the name of Moru, the Lake of Tears, recalls that episode from the gray dawn of history. Whew! Gotta take a stretch after that one. And a drink. <clears throat> Later, Bastion actually gets to meet the Acherus. The encounter follows soon after he creates a dragon called Smurg and worries that he must be more careful with his storytelling. Uh, he wants to be considered very good and kind and philanthropic. So he is confronted with another set of creatures he created called the Acherus as part of the Silver City's backstory. While he, Atreyu, and their group are traveling in search of a way to send Bastion home, there's a very dark and stormy, <clears throat> a very dark and stormy night during which they hear sounds. Using the stone Alt-Sahir, they see the Acherus in a clearing building one of their silver creations. The Acherus are the ugliest creatures in Fantastica. Uh, they're warm-like with lidless eyes and slimy limbs, uh, though they wrap themselves in rags to conceal some of their appearance. Tears flow from their eyes constantly. No one, not even them, can bear to look at them for long, and they beg Bastion to put his light out. Apparently, they live deep in the earth mining for silver in order to hide themselves and everyone else, only coming out on dark nights to put up beautiful pieces of art to make up for their shame. It's very efficient, since they build below and assemble above. <laughs> Feeling sorry for them, Bastion does as they ask and grants them different bodies, turning them into the schlamoofs. I'll talk about them more later. Uh, for the moment, I want to say that I think the animated TV series based on their design... Uh, based their design of the Acherus off of the original novel's illustrations, uh, as the two look exactly alike. Smurg. Hero Heinrich was pretty pompous, but he didn't really deserve to be humiliated by Bastion in front of everyone the way he was. So, to make up for it and prove Heinrich is worthy of Princess Oglemar, Bastion weaves a terrible story of a dragon who has carried her off. Here's what the text says. And again, let me get to the page. Here we go. Far, far from here, there's a country called Morgul, or the land of the cold fire, because flames there are colder than ice. How you are to reach that country, I can't tell you. You must find out for yourself. In the center of Morgul, there is a petrified forest called Wad, Wad, Wadgabe. <laughs> Wadgabe. And in the center of that petrified forest stands the leaden castle of Rhaegar. It is surrounded by three moats. The first is full of arsenic, the second of steaming nitric acid, and the third is swarming with scorpions as big as your feet. There are no bridges across them, for the lord of the leaden castle is Smurg, the winged monster. His wings are made of slimy skin, and they spread. their spread is a hundred feet. When he isn't flying, he stands on his hind legs like a gigantic kangaroo. He has the body of a mangy rat and the tail of a scorpion, with a sting at the end of it. The merest touch of that sting is fatal. 
He has the hind legs of a giant grasshopper. His forelegs, however, look, uh, which look small and shriveled, resemble the hands of a small child. But don't let them fool you. There's a deadly power in those hands. He can pull in his long neck as a snail does its feelers. There are three heads on it. One is large and looks like the head of a crocodile. From its mouth, he can spit icy fire. But where a crocodile has its eyes, it has two protuberances. These are extra heads. One resembles the head of an old man. With it, he can see and hear. But he talks with the second head, which has the wrinkled face of an old woman. <laughs> Whenever I'm uh, reading the never-ending story or doing something with it, I totally forget uh, the name of the dragon from uh, The Hobbit. <laughs> I think I think it's... And here it's Smurg, and then and and it's very similar. Anyway, you can look it up. <laughs> Sorry to all my Lord of the Rings fans. It's just Smurg, Smurg, <laughs> with his ridiculous description always, always takes over my brain. <clears throat> as Bastion leaves and Heinrich sets out on his quest, Bastion wonders if he went too far as he sees some destruction left by Smurg. Uh, fortunately, Hero Heinrich succeeds and saves Oglemar. Uh, but at the end of his quest, realizes he doesn't want to marry the princess anymore. Presumably because he realizes he doesn't want to be with someone who cares only for strength or because he wants to keep adventuring. But we'll never know for sure. Ilwan. As Bastion travels with Atreyu, Falcor, Hyperion, Hisbald, and Hydorn, uh, they are joined by princes from dozens of Fantastican countries who want him to visit them and give their people a story of their own. This includes a blue jinn, that's D-J-I-N-N, as in genie, uh, named Ilwan, who is tall, muscular, and glossy like blue metal. He arrives on a camel with a turban on his head and an eagle's beak instead of a mouth. Very quickly, he becomes a sort of second-in-command to Bastion as hordes of princes arrive to form a huge procession. Uh, this caravan of all types of characters follows Bastion until the battle at Ivory Tower at the ivory tower uh accepting that their savior doesn't have time for all of them but hoping to at least have a story to tell about the journey ilwan follows bastion's lead without question even when those with the most influence over the human boy are atreyu and zaide uh when his friends try to take orin away bastion calls ilwan to wake everyone up so he can reprimand them in front of a crowd when bastion decides to become emperor after zaida suggests it ilwan is included in his inner circle of confidants who stay in the palace with him while the magnolia palace is inaccessible during the bloody battle at the ivory tower ilwan dies saving bastion's belt of invisibility which is later lost anyway his blind faith in the savior of fantastica leads to his demise along with hundreds of others who perish in the fight yika when Bastion first meets the three knights Hyperion, Hisbald, and Hydorn, along with Hero Heinrich and Princess Oglemar, he is still relatively humble, or at least enjoying how little anyone knows about him as the savior of Fantastica. He opts to ride the old pack mule Yika rather than a mighty steed, which makes her very happy. She tells him that she knew uh, who he was immediately, uh, so they share this secret. Later, as Atreyu gets them started on the journey to find a way to the human world, Bastion chooses Yika for his steed yet again, and she's overjoyed, riding at the front of the procession. However, as the caravan grows, Bastion begins to think he should have a more dignified steed, eventually riding in luxury with Zaide when she joins them. In order to do this, he makes up a new story for Yika about a pegasus who has been following the caravan, desperately in love with the mule who is the savior's steed. 
Reluctantly, Yika goes to him in order to get married and have children, the one thing a mule normally could never do. And Bastion feels bad for sending her away since Zaida pushed him to do it before he was really ready to. The text says that Yika lives a happy married life with the winged stallion, and they have a son named Pataplan, who is a white-winged mule who goes on to become famous. Zaide. Zaide is the mistress of Horak Castle, the seeing hand, in the middle of an orchid forest. She sets up an elaborate trap for Bastion by kidnapping his three knights, Hyperion, Hisbald, and Hydorn, who are quite easy to rescue from her hand-shaped castle and hordes of empty metal henchmen. She controls her guards by force of will, including metal horses, and manipulates Bastion as deftly as she does them. This is probably because she sees how Bastion is losing himself, becoming empty, devoid of memories and purpose. She encourages him to become emperor in the childlike empress's stead, and takes over coronation planning using an army of henchmen that she somehow multiplied out of her original five. In the end, he is only separated from her after his fight with, uh, his fight with and his chase after Atreyu uh, that leads him away from battle. Eventually, she's trampled by her own supposedly mindless minions. A mystery to everyone. Uh, beautiful in a way that is reminiscent of the witch from the Narnia Chronicles, um, Zaide has one green eye and one red and likes to smoke an oriental water pipe shaped like a green snake. There's something sort of seductive about her as she seems to kiss the snake as she smokes. The color of the smoke changes with every puff. Uh, while Bastion notices lots of things about other characters' appearances, he seems to sort of linger on Zaide's marble white hands and the, the and likes the way she grovels, always giving him the most comfortable seat. Uh, she's the childlike empress's opposite in terms of femininity, older and sexier and constantly influencing Bastion with lowered eyelashes and fake demureness. Through not necessarily a sex, she's not necessarily a sexual character per se, uh, but she's bad company. Um, she's, uh, however, the, an important point is that she's only able to manipulate Bastion because he has already lost sight of who he truly is and what really matters to him. Like any good, good cult leader or bad partner or drug dealer, she takes advantage of his lost sense of direction. Bastion is already in a bad place when he meets her, thus is open to her influence. Not looking for the signs of deception because he's already feeling paranoid about his close friends. He doesn't want to do what his friends tell him, return to the human world, so he listens when Zaide suggests that uh, suggests they don't want what's best for him the way that she does. Even when she grovels at his feet and refers to herself as his humble servant, she's boosting his ego in order to drop hints and give him she's giving him presents that encourage bad behavior like the invisibility belt as a side note even gemmel the belt of invisibility doesn't disappear just as side characters rarely do bastion drops it while chasing after atreyu and falcor and it's picked up by a blackbird who will go on to have her own story the fact that bastion dropped it and never thought of it again despite another character risking their life to retrieve it at one at some point uh indicates that he formed few attachments to the people he met while riding his superiority high. He never again thinks about the three knights or the caravan of creatures who followed him into battle at the ivory tower. During that time, he wasn't really capable of being grateful for the true friends he had, uh, more captivated by random people's adoration of him. Zaide took advantage of his lack of direction. 
In the second never-ending story film, Zaide is the primary villain. She casts a spell that causes Bastion to lose a memory every time he makes a wish on Orin, so that the movie ends with a similar message to the book. Bastion needs his father more than anything. In fact, his father is his only remaining memory by the end, if I remember correctly, same as in the book. Uh, she is a great... Uh, <laughs> Zaidi has this great evil witch thing going on. Um, I like her in the animated series too, uh, where she's also the villain with her empty armor robot henchman. Uh, her design is simple but classic, and she has some really cool powers. As always, her manipulative skills are even more powerful than her dark magic. Argax. In the city of Old Emperors, Argax is the monkey who oversees the activities of all the wayward humans who tried to become emperors in Fantastica. They live in a nonsense town doing nonsense things while Argax keeps count. He wears an academic cap to add insult to injury. Everyone there tried to become emperor, with some of them succeeding, but once they used up all their wishes, they wandered aimlessly into this city. They aren't like Fantasticans. Their stories can't continue if they seize too much control, forget themselves, and lose all sense of direction. Orin disappears if someone is actually crowned emperor. Bastion is spared this fate by Atreyu, who battled with him and kept him from being crowned emperor, leaving him free to have just a few more wishes, one of which he has to, he has to use to escape the city of old emperors. From what I can tell, this whole chapter about the city is about truly lost souls. They fell so far into fantasy that they thought they could bend it to their will. There's a similar feeling in Breaking Bad, the TV series, when Walter thinks he can take a powerful drug lord's place only for that event to mark the beginning of the end, which happens a lot faster than everything that got him to that point. Uh, even if successful, humans who crown themselves emperor reject the entire fabric of Fantastica, ignoring the role of the childlike empress uh, that she plays uh, and forgetting their own. The childlike empress is the inspiration and the beginning, and the old man of Wandering Mountain is the endless story taking its twists and turns. Meanwhile, humans must go back to living in their world, holding the book in their hands, telling stories and giving life. They are like gods, yet they are fallible and replaceable. By trying to become something they perceive to be more powerful, they only doom themselves to delusion, leaving behind everything that made them special and important. Basketville. After realizing he no longer wants to be the center of attention, Bastion comes across the Iskalnari, a group of men and women about the size of children, like him, who make everything out of wicker work, uh, from their houses to their clothes. This is because the wicker floats on Skyden, the mist, uh, sea of mist. Everyone looks identical, and they speak in turns, so it's hard to know who you spoke with last. Bastion accompanies a group of sailors on a trip from their city of Iskal, a.k.a. Basketville, referring to himself as just someone. At first, it's great to be a seamless part of the group, where everyone says we instead of I, but the novelty wears off when one person is carried away by a monster. Though he no longer feels alone, he doesn't want to lose himself completely, so he leaves them immediately. Dame Ayola Bastion walks through a land of flowers to find a place called the House of Change. It, and Dame Ayola, who lives there, have waited for him to come forever. The house itself is constantly shifting to the needs of the inhabitants or pushing them to go somewhere or do something. Dame Ayola is an enormous plant woman with a dress and hat made of her own leaves and fruit. It is revealed that she lives, withers, and dies, uh, and then lives again over the years, waiting for Bastion to come to her, as with Grogram and the Lion. Although she thinks about these lives in terms of, like, her mother and her mother's mother. 
He forgets everything, just existing as a child does without worry. He enjoys the flowers, eats his fill, naps, sits in chairs that are too big for him, and discovers parts of the ever-changing house. Dame Ayola explains that it's called the House of Change not only because it changes itself, but also because it changes anyone who lives in it, telling Bastion the story of himself so he knows where he is and can figure out where he's going. He reflects on what he has done, saying, I did everything wrong. I misunderstood everything. Moonchild gave me so much, and all I did with, with it was harm. Harm to myself and harm to Fantastica. Dame Ayola assures him that following the way of wishes is never wrong, just bumpy, and that he must find the fountain of the water of life, the most secret place in Fantastica. He must find a truly wonderful wish to get him out of Fantastica. Nothing is lost, everything is transformed. When Bastion finds his wish, not just to be loved, but to love someone else, it is time for him to leave, and the house closes up behind him. Like childhood, it was a wonderful time, but there's no going back. Yor. When Bastion reaches the home of Yor the Picture Miner, he has only his name left, which in itself impresses Yor. He agrees to help Bastion find a memory of his own from the endless dreams in Fantastica's bedrock, which is the only way Bastion, uh, for Bastion to reach the water of life. Forgotten dreams are still memories. Yor also explains that they must be incredibly quiet. He is sometimes called the blind miner because he cannot see in the, in the light of day, only in the darkness of the Mindroad mine. Stone gray with a smooth face despite his age, with eyes that are black save for a small bright flame in their depths. Yor lets Bastion live with him in his shack, eat soup, and spend every day in the mine. The miner understands Bastion's wish to love, but knows the water of life will test him. To whom will he share this love? He must find a memory to act as an answer. They bring up hundreds of delicate pictures and lay them out on the snow to examine, for Bastion used the glowing stone Alza here in the, at the wrong time and must now mine in the dark in, cer in search of his own dream. He sees dreams and nightmares of all kinds, then finds his own. An image of his father, a doctor, wearing a white smock and frozen in a block of ice. It is the answer he needs, even though it costs him his final memory, his name, Sebastian leaves, carrying the dream with him, as delicate as any nearly forgotten dreams shattered by the first loud sounds of morning. Yor compliments his hard work, then goes back to work. It's uh, quite fitting that the foundations of Fantastica are made up of human dreams. Uh, those are the ultimate fantasies, as well as totally forgotten. They don't quite become stories, but they're still an important part of how we cope with the real world. Bastion's dream of his father frozen in ice is significant because it indicates that somewhere inside he knows that his father is unable to move on after the death of his wife, unable to give Bastion the love a son needs due to his frozen heart. By having this memory and understanding his father, uh, Bastion will be able to succeed in giving him love. Schlamoofs. After feeling disgusted and sorry for the Acarus, the ugly worm creatures who cry nonstop in utter despair, Bastion wished on Orin for them all to be transformed into the Schlamoofs, the happiest creatures in Fantastica. At first it seemed like a good thing because it was impossible not to laugh at their jokes and antics, their silly butterfly clown appearance, and their acrobatics. Their outfits are silly mixes of polka dots and stripes and are either too big or too small. Everything has patches, even their wings. All are unique, with colorful faces, top hats, rubbery mouths, ridiculous hair, and so on. However, everything is a joke to them, and nothing matters, so they tore apart the same silver sculpture they themselves built when they were the Acarus before flying away. 
When Bastion leaves Yorsman Road in search of the Water of Life, he is found by the Shlemuths, who are now unhappy in a different way, fed up with themselves. Their life is meaningless. They can't make anything, they don't do anything, they're not capable of taking anything serious enough to be productive. They decide Bastion should be their leader and come up with fun things for them to do so they're not bored and purposeless anymore. They don't care at all for Bastion's delicate memory. They don't care that Moru the Lake of Tears has dried up. Only the sound of Falcor's bell-like voice scares them away because they can't be reasoned with. In the animated series, uh, the appearance of the Shlemuths is a happy thing, uh, largely because the Acheris don't do anything useful in the story. There's a whole episode about how the Water of Life, which they just call the Fountain of Life since it's out in the open where Angiwook can see it with his telescope, uh, is being poisoned by tears of the Acheris. Anyone who drinks it or looks too closely is exposed to such terrible sadness that they turn to stone. Bastion finds the Acheris in a cave where Zaida's henchmen have drilled holes in order to let their tears leak into the fountain. I really like the way the Acheris are animated, along with the Shlemuths. Uh, it's an episode that really stuck with me, despite missing Ende's message about balancing sadness and happiness, freedom and seriousness. Water of Life There is a fountain located inside Orin, the gem. As De Mayola explains about Fantastica's borders, they're not outside, but inside, in the place where the childlike empress gets all her power from, but where she herself cannot go. Bastion is only able to reach it once he voluntarily removes Orin from his neck to give to Atreyu and Falcor, at which point all three of them are transported inside. There are two impossibly huge snakes, one black and one white, guarding, guarding the water of life and beyond. They bite each other's tails to keep themselves from destroying everything, marking the end of all roads. Bastion is shocked to know that he and Atreyu have carried this around during all of their journeys. The head of the black snake faces them, holding the white snake's tail, and its eye alone is so huge that Falcor seems small as a caterpillar. He interprets the water singing for the two boys. I am the water of life. Out of myself I grow. The more you drink of me, the fuller I will flow. The black snake lifts its head for Bastion to pass beneath, only when Atreyu vouches for Bastion and... And the human boy agrees to give up all the beauty and strength that was gifted to him, for he has no memories to act as a ticket and no childlike empress to help him. Bastion jumps into the fountain, shaped like a golden bowl, regaining all memory as well as his original fat body, which he now revels in. Atreyu and Falcor realize that they have been here before. When they went to the ivory tower and the childlike empress left in search of the old man of Wandering Mountain, her invisible powers transported them here for healing. Atreyu is happy to see Bastion the way he remembers him from the Magic Mirror Gate so long ago, since he never really seemed to like Bastion's handsome appearance given to him by the Empress. Uh, it's just nice to know that she saw him the way he wanted to be seen. <laughs> the White Snake uh, lifts its head only when Atreyu promises to finish every story Bastion left incomplete, breadcrumbs of which have been left throughout the story. The Water of Life is probably the most mysterious part of the whole story, it seems to represent the lifeblood of storytelling, so Bastion is able to keep some and give it to his father through telling him what happened, seeing it only when his father sheds a tear. On the one hand, it is important to Fantastica, but it also holds Bastion's memories as a part of the border between worlds. And the only way to discover the water of life is to go through all the hardships and mistakes and successes that Bastion did. He encountered characters who knew about it, but only found them through everything that came before. 
And with that, I think I'll wrap up this episode. I know I missed some things, uh, but it's pretty exhausting combing through the book looking for random creatures. <laughs> there are brief mentions of uh, a lot of different creatures like griffins, fairies, water sprites, shadow scamps, blondie, blondie cats, giant eagles, unicorns, sassafranians who are born old and die young like Benjamin Button, people at uh, at the glass tower of Erebo, who seem to be made of blown glass, uh, and inhabitants of the city of Salamander, where everyone is made of fire. And most of them don't have enough information for me to focus on them. If you don't feel like reading the book, I'd recommend seeing the animated series to round out your knowledge of general ideas and characters, though the overall tone is very different, <laughs> since Bastion can travel back and forth between realms freely. Um, you can find it on YouTube. The audiobook for the Neverending Story is also fantastic, uh, but the book is still, it, the book is just great because of the illustrations by Ross Withick-Quanflieg at the beginning of each chapter. Uh, they really capture the excitement and whimsy of the story, and she clearly read each chapter before drawing its subject matter. Uh, it's no wonder the cover is so detailed and pretty because there's already fantastic artwork inside to compete with. I absolutely love this book. I see something new in it every time I read it. Uh, this time, I noticed how much Michael Ende loves Native Americans. Skimming through Ende's Wikipedia page, I learned a lot of interesting things, such as his love for Japan. Always fun for me as a Japanese major. However, I couldn't find anything about Indians or Native Americans there, so I would have to do some more digging elsewhere that I don't have time for <laughs> to confirm that he chose Atreyu as a main proxy character because of his own childhood love of playing cowboys and Indians or something similar. Maybe it's in the documentary and I forgot. You can fact check me uh, on this for me. You can fact check me. Uh, and apologies to indigenous and Indian people for using outdated terms here. Uh, yes, Atreyu has green skin and blue-black hair, but otherwise his culture and personality seem wholly inspired by what Ende would have heard about Native Americans growing up. Their village is in the prairie uh, is made is all tents and sleeping furs. Their relationship with the purple, purple buffalo and the land... Uh, they're serious yet generous nature. They're all things that he seems to have admired, from what I can tell. The appearance of a buffalo in Atreyu's dream, telling him to see Morla, the aged one, also seems to be inspired by Native American lore. One snippet indicating it can be a sign to be grateful and not worry too much if you see one. Uh, to all you animal lovers out there, I do know the difference between bison and buffalo, but the translated text says buffalo. It's pretty clear to me that Ende meant American bison rather than any kind of water buffalo from another continent. Just saying. Uh, Atreyu wears leather pants and a purple buffalo cloak uh, throughout the story because he holds his identity as a green skin close. And later on, when Atreyu meets the wind giants, Ende couldn't help but include a little bit more lore with the colors of the giants matching Lakota tribe colors for the four directions, though he replaced white with gray for stormy effect. Seriously, if you think I missed anything, leave a comment on YouTube or Instagram for, uh, for this or other books you'd like to hear about. That's it for this episode. Check out my Instagram at Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A-B-R-I-C-K-L-E-Y, to see the rest of my collection and let me know what books you are never going to read. Are you interested in sci-fi, fantasy, classics, children's books, or covers that stop you in your tracks? I'll try to get to all of them if you like listening to this kind of thing. You can also let me know what you liked and didn't like about this episode so I can improve in the future. Until next time... Bye-bye, Earthlings.